0: Grab your Bible if you would and open with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, this section that uh, Anna read for us this morning. And kids, you are dismissed to your classes. You thought I forgot, didn't you? Y'all yeah, thought I forgot. I remembered as I saw the kids leaving. I've titled this morning's message, Demands of Discipleship, Demands of Discipleship, and I did so, I I titled it such, with a little bit of fear and trepidation, because I know that most of us don't like the word demands. Demands sounds so rigid, so demanding, right, so heavy, almost like a... A piece of wood that is rough around the edges and hasn't been sanded and hasn't been finished and could one day be beautiful, but right now it's full of splinters and heavy. But the more I studied this text, the more I became convinced that demands is actually a good word to use here. Because if Jesus is truly the Son of God and if Jesus truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then it seems perfectly acceptable that he would have demands for his followers. And it is perfectly acceptable that he would have the right to demand from us whatever he wished. And as you'll notice from the title Um, Demands of discipleship, that these are not demands that we might merit discipleship. These aren't things that we do to become disciples of Jesus Christ. These are demands of discipleship, demands of disciples of Jesus Christ. So Jesus makes the demands. He tells us what it looks like to be a disciple, Now, let me just, at the beginning here, say that there is a disclaimer on the side of this sermon this morning. And the disclaimer is that we would not fall into one of two ditches, actually that we would not fall into either of two ditches this morning. The first ditch that we want to avoid is seeing these demands as performance standards to attain or maintain our status as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So the first ditch, again, is that we would see these demands as some sort of performance standard, that if we follow these demands, then we can either attain or we can maintain our status as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that that's how the Chick-fil-A rewards program works. That's how United Air Miles works. That's not how the kingdom of God works. You don't have to spend enough. You don't have to be a certain level of righteousness achieved to somehow merit the kingdom of God, to somehow merit God's favor. And likewise, you don't have to continue in some sort of standard of following the demands of Christ to somehow be able to maintain your status so you have to spend a certain amount enough air miles or enough dollars at Chick-fil-a to get into the war awards program and then if you want to level up you can do that by traveling more or spending more money but once you level up you have to maintain that same level of spending or travel otherwise you get bumped back down to you know peasant level but not so with the kingdom of God And so, we don't want to fall into the ditch of thinking that we somehow merit eternal life or merit our standing with God or maintain our standing with God based on our performing these demands. Because the glorious reality of the gospel is that although we were dead in sin, God provided his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin to be born and take on human flesh and to live in our fallen and broken sin-filled world and yet to live without sin, to f- perfectly fulfill the law of God and the righteousness of God. And yet he willingly gave up his life. He willingly became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he suffered and he died, not because of his sin, and not for his sin because he had none. But he suffered and died for the sin of all who believe in him. Gloriously, he did not stay dead. Three days later, the father rose him from the dead, fully satisfying the requirements of the law, fully demonstrating that life has conquered death, fully demonstrating that the death and the debt of sin that we owed is now paid in full for all who believe. And Jesus appeared to many people during his time on earth living now in his glorified body and people saw him and they recognized him and they recognized that he was truly alive and then he ascended back to the father according to Acts chapter one and a cloud hid him from the sight of his disciples and as they stood there with mouths likely agape looking into the sky, an angel appeared and said, why are you looking into the sky? You know that this same Jesus who has left will return in the same way. his returning we as his people anxiously wait and long and none of that none of that standing with God comes through our merit but only by confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead are we saved as we turn and we trust in him this is his gift to us Because even faith, even saving faith, Hebrews, or Ephesians chapter two tells us, is a gift of God. So that from beginning to eternity, our salvation is all and only and forever due to the kindness and the mercy and the love and the grace of our heavenly father, not through our merit, not through anything we can do or attain or maintain on our own. So we want to avoid that ditch of seeing this somehow the demands of Jesus as a as a performance standard so that we might attain or maintain our status as a disciple the other ditch we want to avoid is to take these demands lightly because we know we are saved by grace this would be the response That is a temptation for us who understand that salvation is all and only the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. We want to swing in the other direction and say, well, if that's truly the case, then I guess it doesn't really matter what I do. I can live for myself. I can live for my flesh. I can kind of follow my own path. It doesn't really matter what Jesus has said because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet scripture makes clear. The true followers of Jesus Christ are known by the fruit that God produces in our life, which we bear. And true Christians are, are recognizable. Because the work of the Holy Spirit in us is producing the fruit of the Spirit, is producing the attitude and the character of Christ's likeness for others to see as he slowly conforms us into the image of Jesus. And so if we kind of blow off the demands of discipleship, it it could show that perhaps we're not truly a Christian. It could show that perhaps we don't truly understand how desperate our need is for his grace and how gracious the forgiveness of God is and the glory of who the Father is for us. Because when we truly understand that, in the songs that we sung this morning, you can see this coming out, we truly understand who we are and our sin and who Jesus Christ is in suffering and dying in our place and who the Father is in sending the Son and who the Spirit is in applying the work of the Father and the Son to our hearts. How can we not then submit ourselves and bow the knee before King Jesus, not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord? That's the mark of a disciple. And so we want to avoid the first ditch of, we could say legalism, trying to perform or merit our standing before God, and we want to avoid the second ditch of, we could say licentiousness or antinomianism, the lack of the law, lack of following. I just love Jesus and that's enough. I don't have to obey. But rather, The path of discipleship is trust and obey, for there is no other way, right, to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. So with that as our foundation, let's get into the text itself. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, the word of the Lord says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, this is Jesus, to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So some background here so we can understand where this is placed in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus has already been ministering for some time now. And he's gathered to himself a following of men and women who trust in him. Within that following, there's a, a more of a, an inner circle of the 12 apostles that he's kind of deputized to go out and to carry the cause of the kingdom of God to the nations to be his ambassadors. And then within that 12, there's kind of the inner three of Peter, James, and John who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, that mountain that we're going to hear about next week in next week's sermon. They've already gone on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've already seen Jesus transfigured. And so Jesus has been teaching that he is going to suffer and die and rise again. And his disciples are, to this point, clueless in understanding what that means. And here in verse 51, and going all the way until Jesus' arrest, this is really the journey to Jerusalem. So if this were kind of set to a movie you would slowly and faintly right now begin to hear kind of a drumbeat that will get louder in each successive chapter of Luke as we get closer and closer to Jesus's betrayal and to his arrest and to his crucifixion. Luke tells us that Jesus's face is set to go towards Jerusalem. So he's He's understanding his mission. He's understanding the the purpose of the Father in sending the Son. And so he's resolved to go to Jerusalem. He knows that Jerusalem is the place where this is all going to go down, just according to prophecy. What's interesting here in verse 51 is that Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, which refers to the ascension. It refers to what I just... Described Jesus rising physically from the earth into the sky and a cloud hiding him from sight and returning back to heaven to be with the Father. And it says that when the time grew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. We would think when the time drew near for Jesus to be crucified, right? He set his face to go towards Jerusalem. Or when the time drew near for Jesus to be resurrected, he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. But this ascension piece of of him being taken up is a bit surprising, maybe because a lot of times in Protestant evangelicalism, we don't often give enough weight or enough thought to the ascension. We talk a lot about the crucifixion, we talk a lot about the resurrection, and rightly so, and sometimes we don't talk enough about the ascension. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's looking through the cross and he's looking through the empty tomb and he is seeing the glory that is to come when he returns back to the Father. Jesus is longing for home. And in true Hebrews chapter 12 fashion, he is willing to endure the cross. He's willing to scorn its shame why? For the joy set before him, the joy of returning back to his father, being able to say, mission accomplished, job done. And I think it's in Jesus' longing, his setting his face for what is to come, looking ahead to going home that gives us encouragement. It gives us strength in the trials, the suffering, the adversity, the setbacks, the persecution that we ex- experience in the here and now like we live in a broken world we live in a fallen world that is not yet what it will one day be but we have the eternal promises of the father that one day our world will be restored there will be a new heaven and a new earth and it will be like the garden of eden only even better because sin will not even be there at all not even the possibility of sin And we long for that day as we live in the here and now. And we look forward to that. We set our face resolutely like Jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross. And we who are his disciples have been called, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, to deny ourselves and pick up our cross that we might follow him. And we do so with our eyes fixed on the joy set before us of going home, of being with our Father in heaven forever. And so Jesus, with his face set to go towards Jerusalem, begins to physically journey in that direction. Verse 52 says, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So Jesus sends his followers, go into Jerusalem, make preparations for my arrival, make preparations for a a banquet, feast. His followers go into the village of the Samaritans, but the Samaritans don't receive him. Forget that, forget you, forget Jesus. We're We're not welcoming you here. Move along. And we're not sure why exactly. Luke doesn't tell us why. It could be, Because Jesus is set to go towards Jerusalem and we know that the Passover is right around the corner and the Passover is is the highest of all the holy days for the Jews. The Passover is the time when the people of Yahweh gathered together and remember how they were spared from complete annihilation in Egypt and how God spared them from the death angel as he passed over in Egypt. And so every year the people would gather together and they would celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. But if you remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in the book of John, she brings up this interesting dispute that's taking place between the Jews and the Samaritans who already hated one another. The Jews thought that the Samaritans were sellout. They were impure to the people of God. And the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, Okay, if you're so smart, tell us, where is it that we truly ought to worship? Because you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem at the high place, and we Samaritans say we should worship here. And now we encounter Jesus who is headed towards Jerusalem to worship at Passover. That could be why. Again, we're not told why. Luke doesn't tell us that it's important for us to know. But they did not receive him. So our first demand of discipleship is very simply don't reject Jesus, right? It sounds so trite, sounds so entry-level, so basic. Of course, I'm not going to reject Jesus. But the Samaritans here are rejecting the author of life. They're rejecting the very one who has come as their salvation. And so the call to you this morning, if you are not a Christian, is don't reject this salvation of Jesus, for your sake, God made Jesus to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in Jesus and through Jesus' death and resurrection, you might become the righteousness of God. And that reality can be yours this morning. And we pray that it is yours this morning, friend, if you are not a Christian, as God opens the eyes of your heart to see, even as we have sung and her testimony and prayed, And now the word is proclaimed and you begin to realize God helping you, yes. You know what? I need that. I am not a Christian. I am not a follower of Jesus Christ. I have not confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and truly believed in my heart that he is the risen Savior of the world. Would you be reconciled to God this morning through Jesus? Don't reject Jesus. Jesus is a demand of discipleship. Well, what happens next is really interesting and somewhat bizarre and funny as well. You can laugh. Many in the first service laughed when encountered James and John's response here. Look at verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, saw the Samaritan village rejecting Jesus, they said... Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Which seems bizarre and sort of humorous, I guess, in a way, as well. That James and John would want to call fire down from heaven to consume the Samaritan village for not embracing Jesus as the Messiah. You may have a footnote in your verse there, verse 54, that says, as Elijah did, um, that addition is not in the earliest manuscripts, which is why it's not in your actual text of scripture, it was added later. But it's a reminder back to the Old Testament because if we understand the Old Testament, specifically if we understand Second Kings chapter one, we begin to see that this request of James and John is not all that bizarre. It's not as weird as it seems to us on the surface. Because in 1 Kings chapter one, Elijah, the great prophet, is in the midst of his ministry. And he's ministering in this same region where Jesus now is with his disciples. He's ministering in the Samaritan region. And the Samaritan king, Ahaziah, refuses to recognize that Elijah is the man of God. That he is God's chosen ambassador. And so Ahaziah seeks to kill Elijah. And they come to kill Elijah, the first batch, come to kill Elijah, and guess what? Elijah calls down fire, and it consumes them, and they die in their sin, in their wickedness, in their rebellion against God, in the hardness of their heart. Another group comes. Elijah calls down fire. That messenger dies as well. The third messenger comes in fear and trepidation, recognizing that truly Elijah is God's chosen ambassador he is the the man of God and he's spared but knowing that background and knowing that the last time a Samaritan village rejected the rightful ambassador of God himself fire fell from heaven and consumed them makes it easier for us to understand this strange request from James and John like we understand at least why they would be saying you want us to call down fire and consume them now, it is ironic that, if you remember, they could not cast a demon out of a boy, that James and John fell asleep along with Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, that they were unable to feed the crowd, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 that was gathered there, and now they think that they can call down fire, but maybe it's because they understood the Old Testament and they understood what happened last time people rejected the rightful ambassador of Yahweh. Notice Jesus' response to all of this. He says, yes, do it. Kill them all, right? No, he doesn't. But he turned, verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. We don't know what he said. We don't know how he said it but we know that he rebuked them. Which brings us to our second demand of discipleship in our text this morning, and that is that we are to leave vengeance to God. We are to leave vengeance to God. James and John misunderstand both their role and the timing of this situation. They misunderstand the timing because this is not a day of judgment. This is a day of opportunity. A window of gospel opportunity is opened. Jesus has come declaring the good news of the kingdom of God, calling people to repent and believe in himself. It is a window of opportunity for men and women, young and old, to embrace Christ Jesus as the rightful king and savior of the world. This is not a day of vengeance. This is not a day of ultimate and eternal justice and judgment. But the disciples don't understand that. They misread the day and they misread the time, which means they also misunderstand their role. Because they think that this is a day of vengeance and justice, they think that their role is to enact the vengeance on behalf of God, instead of understanding that their role is to be an ambassador of the good news of the kingdom of God to all who need to hear. And here's where it gets really practical for us, because my guess is, you—if and I would be shocked if any of you have ever sought to call down fire on those who don't believe, right? You have an unbelieving neighbor. You shared the gospel. They're not willing to repent and believe. Like, all right, God, here they are, right? Like, we don't do that because we rightly understand that vengeance is God's. Or do we? How many times have we gotten frustrated with those that we care about who refused to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. What has our response been when we have been ridiculed or passed over for promotions at work or suffered misunderstanding or, or suffered because we are a Christian? Been mocked been disadvantaged in some sort of way because we follow Jesus Christ? What has our response been in those moments? Has it been anger, frustration? I'm going to get them. HR needs to know about them. Maybe. But has the disposition of our heart been one of, of longing to see them rightly brought into a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Will you be mad at the enemy who blinds the eyes of the unbelievers But the unbelievers are blind. And our heart's longing should not be vengeance, should not be, all right, let them have justice. It should be longing that they would hear, longing that they would see, longing that they would embrace the good news of great joy for all who believe. That is our role during this window of opportunity. Next, Jesus is approached by two individuals and calls to one individual, so three different interactions with three different men here. Each of them, we could say, are potential disciples or potential followers of Jesus Christ. As they were going along, verse 57, now they're leaving the Samaritan village, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 58, and Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It might seem like an interesting response that Jesus gives, but remember, Jesus is the Son of God. He can see into this man's heart. Luke just gives us the most briefest of words. Jesus exposes what's going on in the heart of this man. And we could say that this man, it seems, promises too much too soon. He's ready to jump on the bandwagon without actually counting the cost. He's not willing to suffer. He's wanting to follow Jesus without realizing that it will not necessarily bring financial well-being it will not necessarily bring health wealth and happiness in fact it oftentimes will mean just the opposite this man is so quick to jump on board without considering the that the narrow road is also a hard road it's a good road but it's not an easy road I think the challenge here for all of us then is to count the cost. That would be the third demand of discipleship in our text this morning, that we count the cost. Yesterday, Tara and I went out for a little while in the afternoon and went into a, a sporting goods store. And I thought, you know, um, Bengals are playing in the in the, the Super Bowl and it uh, might be kind of cool to outfit our six family members in a Bengals shirt. We could all watch the game. It'd be kind of fun. And um, It was before I found out that was going to have to take out a second mortgage to do that. but um, I went into a sporting goods store that used to have a section, maybe the size of this part of the platform with kind of Bengals gear. And I went in, and typically when I've been in the store before, um, there, there are more workers than there are shoppers, right? Like there's two or three people in the store I went in. There's probably easily 50 people packed in the store. And all of the other racks were all pushed to the side to make room for these long eight-foot tables just stacked up with Bengals gear. Everybody's buying armloads of Bengals gear and stuff. What's interesting is just, you know, uh, a few months ago, you could go to TJ Maxx, right, and buy like Bengals stuff for like $4.99, and now, right, there's a huge market for Bengals gear. Me included, right? Because I'm a Detroit Lions fan, long-suffering, longer-suffering even than Bengals fans. But, but the, <laughs> thank you, Adam. But for, for this point in time, and I think it's great, right, like people getting on board, but for in this moment, this unique season of time, this unique moment in the, in our, our city's history, it's banding people together, and I think that's great, right? But, and I'm willing to admit, I'm a bandwagon fan at this point, right? I have no, no teeth in it, because I'm not like Adam Josephic, who has suffered through the long years, and others of you who are Bengals fan, right, who have suffered through the long years of, of poor seasons and mismanagement and all the kinds of other things that have happened, And it's easy for me to jump on now when they're headed to the Super Bowl and everything's great and lots of other people obviously are doing so. But how easy it is to read about the promises of heaven and to read about the glory of the kingdom to come and to read about all my sins forgiven and think, hey, that's great, I want that, and to jump on as a bandwagon Christian. Without counting the cost, without denying ourselves and picking up our cross that we might follow Jesus, knowing that the cross always comes before the crown. J.C. Ryle wrote and says Nothing has done more harm to Christianity in the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and to talk fluently of his or her experience. It may be painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength. That there may be a great quantity of mere outward religion while there is very little real grace. Let me then warn you plainly that there is a crown at the end of glory but there is also a daily cross on the way. We are called as disciples, in fact demanded as disciples, that we count the cost. Think bandwagon fans in sports may be irritating. Right? But bandwagon Christians will hear those tragic words one day, depart from me, I never knew you. A third man in this narrative, and if you're like, what happened to the second man? We'll get to him in a minute, you'll see why. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We might think, well, this seems kind of cruel of Jesus because here's a man who says, I'm gonna follow you. Just first let me say goodbye to my friends and family at home. And Jesus says, no. If that's where your heart is, you're not worth following. You're not, you're not worth the kingdom of God. You're not fit for being one of my disciples. Again, this is where it's helpful to know that Jesus, as the Son of God, knows this man's heart. We just get from Luke a, a summary or a short statement that he says. Jesus looks into his heart. And obviously, from Jesus' response to this man, what he saw was a man who had half-hearted devotion was only kind of halfway willing to follow. Like, yeah, yeah, I want to follow you, Jesus, but first, let me go. I've got some stuff at home to take care of. And how easy it is to have divided commitment. I want to follow Jesus Christ, but be really concerned about what other people think of us. To want to follow Jesus Christ, but also to want to have our dreams on earth fulfilled and our goals for this life come to fruition, how easy it is to want to follow Jesus Christ and yet want comfort and ease and pleasure. Even if it means not faithfully following the Lord through the road of suffering, should that lead. Again, we see an example from Elijah's life. Near the end of Elijah's ministry, God has made it clear to him that Elisha will take over for him. And he's told where he is to find Elisha. And so he goes out and he finds Elisha in a field plowing with oxen. And Elijah makes it clear to Elisha that he is to follow, that he puts his mantle on him, like you're gonna take over for me in the role of this great prophet in Israel. And what does Elisha do? He cuts up the oxen and burns them as a sacrifice to the Lord, and then he follows Elijah. Like he says, "I'm I'm all in on this. This is not part way. This is not like I'm going to continue to do this and follow you. But for me to faithfully follow you as a prophet, I need to I need to cut ties with this in the past that's holding me back, that I might faithfully follow." Which once again reminds us of Hebrews chapter 12, because just a few verses before we read that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, we read that since we are surrounded by such great a cloud of witness, witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us, including distractions. including other loves that rival, that get in the way, of our love of Jesus Christ, that we might run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So this is an example. I think it's a demand of discipleship is that we, I, I just called it burn the oxen. You can come up with another term if you like. That we commit That if we've been playing games kind of halfway, that we repent of that this morning. Knowing that there is grace and forgiveness. But that there is greater joy in complete obedience to the Lord, complete surrender to King Jesus than there is anywhere else. And that the most miserable Christians are Christians who are trying to have it both ways. Live with a divided heart. Finally, this second man who comes... Comes to him in verse 59 and actually this man, Jesus, calls to him and says to follow me. He's the only one of these three that Jesus actually approaches and says, follow me. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Again, this sounds really harsh, Most commentators believe that this man's father had already died and he just simply wants to go home and preside over and make sure that there's a proper burial for his father. In fact, we know from the Old Testament, Genesis 46, 49, 50, that that's one of the primary responsibilities of a son in the biblical world for their parents is to make sure that they're buried properly. And yet Jesus knows this man's heart. And so I don't think what Jesus is saying is reject your parents completely and reject all familial responsibilities. I think what Jesus is saying is he's looking into this man's heart and he's recognizing that there is a lack of urgency in the mission at hand. And so he says to him this very strange thing, leave the dead to bury their own dead. What does Jesus mean there? His father is dead and needs to be buried. Jesus is saying leave the dead to bury their own dead. So we're not talking about two physically dead people because that would be impossible. I think he's referring to those who are spiritually dead because already he has referred to those who are dead even around him who have physically have life but are dead. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, you see this in John's writing, the Gospel of John, you see it in Peter's writing, you see it in Paul's writing, light and dark, Uh, death and life contrasted. And I think what Jesus is saying here is your father father is dead. That window is closed. That time is, is past. Let those who are dead, let those who are spiritually dead, take care of those kinds of menial things because there is an urgent task at hand because he commissions him then to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. Again, we don't know that this of these three disciples actually became a true follower of Jesus Christ. I tend to think he did, but I want you need to read that and study that and come to your own conclusions. But either way, he's commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to go out and proclaim the urgent news of the kingdom of God. And this is where this passage with these three individuals I think connects to the passage we just saw about the Samaritan village, and that is there is a window of opportunity open right now for the cause of Christ and the sake of the gospel and the preaching of the kingdom of God. There are so many lesser things that are not eternal that can occupy so much of our time and attention and energy that robs us of being able to commit ourselves to that which is eternal. The people that God has placed around us in our homes and our communities and our workplaces and our schools a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The stakes here are high. We're talking about life and death, heaven and hell. We're talking about eternity. There's an urgency here. And just as Jesus is not going to get involved with calling down vengeful justice on this unbelieving city, there, there is a time for that. That day will come when we will all stand before God. And the only answer, the only salvation in that moment is that the work of Jesus Christ has been applied to our lives by faith. That's it. But that day is not yet here. And so right now, the window of gospel opportunity, kingdom opportunity, is still open. And so we go, as this man is deputized to go, we go to the nations and We go across the the hallway at school, or we go across the locker room, we go across the workplace, or we go across the street or next door to our neighbor with this urgent message of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God in the Bible simply just refers to the rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ. You might think, well, wait a minute, doesn't God rule over everything? Yes, he does. But specifically in the Bible, it refers to that which is submitted to his rule, to his reign, to his authority. And so if you are a Christian this morning, you are a part of the kingdom of God. You are a kingdom citizen of God. In fact, that's your primary allegiance. And now we are sent out as kingdom ambassadors with this urgent message. There are dead realities in our world, right? There are things that are here today and gone tomorrow, things that won't last for eternity. It doesn't mean that those are all bad, that we can't enjoy those blessings, But it means we need to be oh so careful that those do not rob us of attention and focus on the mission that we have while here. We might be faithful. And so the final demand of a disciple is that we prioritize the eternal. That we prioritize that which will last forever just people. There is coming a day when the window of opportunity will be closed. When the free offer of salvation will no longer be available. And on that day, only the work of Jesus Christ applied to our lives will save, will matter. Nothing that we do nothing that we've achieved, nothing that we have earned, not how good or moral of a person we have been. And so, as Christians, we are called to live and be about our work and be neighbors, be family members, all with that understanding in our minds. It's the operating system through which we see everything. That God may faithfully use us. And when we fail, miss opportunities, there is grace, an abundance of grace that we might get up and we might continue on the path. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.